Science fiction is one of the most popular genres in literature, and arguably one with considerable cultural influence. So what goes into writing a great sci-fi story? And what goes into writing a story that readers love to read? I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today I sit down with Paul Levinson, who is a professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University, and also an award-winning science fiction author. Good morning. Good to be here, Robin. Paul, what are the elements that a story needs to be considered science fiction? Well, what distinguishes science fiction from all other kinds of writing, and what I think makes it so appealing and great, is it's really the only kind of literature that deals with what makes us quintessentially human, that is different from all other living organisms. We all live in the world. We all live in the universe. But we human beings, as far as we know, at least this far, are the only beings that can change the universe, that can change the earth, sometimes for better, sometimes, unfortunately, for worse. But that means that we can actually change the rules of existence itself. So if you think about something like gene splicing, we can actually create new organisms that didn't exist before. Now, gene splicing is no longer science fiction. But back at the very beginning of the 20th century, H.G. Wells wrote a novel, one of his many superb novels, called The Island of Dr. Moreau. And on this island, this doctor was basically creating new kinds of life. They didn't call it gene splicing, but that's what that story was about. And they were sort of half man, half beasts all alone on this island with this doctor, correct? Exactly right. And right around the same time, actually a little before H.G. Wells, you have Jules Verne, another grandfather of science fiction, and he writes a book about a trip to the moon which, again, nowadays, it's no longer science fiction. We walked on the moon in 1969. But back in the late 1800s, that was something which human beings could imagine doing but hadn't yet been able to accomplish scientifically. So science fiction pointed the way, shone a light on those things. And when I grew up in the 1950s, it was a very different world then, by the way, there was much more almost an implicit faith in science itself that we could really improve life through science. We still believe that now, but there also are a lot of horror stories of science gone wrong. But back in the 1950s, there was a much greater optimism. And I remember going, uh, in fact, I was in junior high school, and I would go to the library at least once a week, and one day I got a note and I was called down to the librarian's office. Very nice woman. I can see her face to this day, Mrs. Dason. <laughs> it was uh, a, a nice, uh, cool fall day. But she had a very serious expression on her face. And she said, you know, Paul, take a look at this. And she gave me a list. And on the list were all the books that I had been taking out of the library in junior high school. By the way, it was junior high school 135, not that far from Fordham, because I grew up here. Oh, you're a Bronx guy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yeah, these are the books I've been reading. And she said, well, you know, all you've been reading is science fiction. 
And, you know, if all you do is eat one thing, you're going to get ill. If all you do is read science fiction, you're going to get mentally ill. She really told me that. You know, nowadays, librarians are thrilled if kids read anything. Right. But... Uh, she wanted you to expand what you were reading. Right. So, you know what I did? What did you do? Um... I never went back to the junior high school library. I guess I already was too far gone. I went to the New York Public Library on Alton Avenue, which may even still be there uh, today, and I read every science fiction novel that they had. And that's really what started me uh, as a science fiction writer, because as I was reading, I could imagine writing stories as well. So you appreciated her you know, attempt to kind of help you out, but you're thinking, no way, I'm not giving up my sci-fi. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. No, no, I knew she bent well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, to this day, you know, I'll read a mystery novel. I'll read a mainstream novel. I'm not saying uh, that James Baldwin or Ernest Hemingway or Norman Mailer are, you know, not worthy to read. They are wonderful writers. But nonetheless, none of those books has for me what even just a good science fiction novel has. What is it that a good science fiction novel has for you? What does it do for you when you're, you're taken to another place or another time? It expands my horizons in terms of putting me in greater contact with what we human beings can do in the universe, whether it's going to other planets, whether it's teleporting instantly from one place to another, traveling faster than the speed of light. Time travel is also uh, one of the great themes of science fiction, and it's always been one of my favorite themes. Imagine going back in time and just meeting famous people, but then imagine going back in time and doing something to change history, and that is really extraordinary. In fact, I don't think we'll ever be able to do that. That's too shattering of what we, we're pretty sure the world is like. You like know, the butterfly effect that one thing will change another thing that will change another thing and we don't know what the outcome might be. Exactly right. I mean, it leads into paradox. You know, it's called uh, the grandfather paradox, but it could be just the grandparent paradox. It, it could be any of our ancestors. Explain what that is, Paul. Okay. If, if I go back in time and the usual formation of this paradox is I kill my grandfather, but you don't have to be violent. All I have to do is go back in time and do something that gets in the way of my grandparents meeting so that they don't meet. Okay, so what would that be like? In my case, like 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years ago, whatever. My grandparents don't meet. That means either my father or my mother is not born. That means that I'm not born. So how then could I have gone back in time in the first place right. and done that? And the only way you can get out of that is you have to create even more extraordinary scenarios, like it, an alternate world was created, call it world or reality too. At the instant I prevented my two grandparents from meeting, in that reality, I don't exist. But I come from reality one, so that that's why I'm still able to exist. I mean, I love even thinking about these paradoxes. Another one of my favorite is, where did the time traveler come from? So here's how this works. I'm sitting home later today, minding my own business. There's a knock on the door. I open the door, and I see a familiar-looking person who I realize actually looks a lot like me, except this person is considerably older than me. 
Anyway, this person proceeds to tell me that he is me, he's a time traveler from the future, and he's giving me information that I'll be able to use in a year or two to build the time travel machine. I don't know whether to believe him or not. I take his information. A year or two from now, I'm working in some company. I didn't even have this job now. And I can see how I can use his information to build a time travel machine, which I do. And then at some point, I use that machine to come back and tell my younger self how to build a time travel machine. So the paradox is, where did the information come from in the first place? And I don't have the answer to that, but it's things like that that I love in time travel And that's stories. where movies like, you know, the Minority Port from Tom Cruise or the Terminator movies or Back to the Future sort of come from. Well, let me ask you, Paul, is it imagination or genius that lets writers like H.G. Wells and these other older science fiction writers be able to envision a future that we're actually living in? Well, it's both, and I think, you know, the best science fiction is something that is rooted in the reality of the time in terms of potentials. Let's get back to Jules Verne, A Trip to the Moon. It didn't take all that much imagination, really, to think, well, you know, uh, we we move on the earth, we move, in his days there weren't even airplanes yet, by the way, so that was, you know, pretty extraordinary. But nonetheless, he, he knew we had ships that went on the seas, so he just imagined, let's say somehow we figured out a way to get a ship that we could launch off the sea up into the air. And actually, the Chinese had been using rockets uh, f to celebrate holidays for at least a thousand or more years. And so, you know, it wasn't such a far-fetched idea that maybe we could somehow harness that energy and launch a whole ship uh, to go to the moon. Uh, so it was genius to be able to put that into a plausible story. Uh, and it was uh, definitely imagination. Uh, and, you know, if you, getting back to time travel, I don't really think it's possible. But if you think about it, all the time travel is is doing through time what we do through distance now. So we can travel from one place to another uh, in the same time easily. Why not be able to travel from one time to another with equal ease? Or one dimension to yeah, another. that's right. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon discussing what goes into writing a great science fiction story with Fordham professor Paul Levinson, who is also an award-winning sci-fi writer. So you touched a little on your love of sci-fi because of where it took you. So what's the difference between the science fiction genre and the fantasy genre, or is there one? No, there is one. That's a great question. Uh, a friend of mine and an excellent contemporary author, Gregory Benford, who's also a scientist uh, out in California and has done a lot of work in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, he once put it, and it's a little unfair to fantasy maybe, but fantasy, he says, is science fiction being played with the net down. And what he means by that is in order for a science fiction story to work, it has to have some scientific plausibility. So if I want to travel to another planet, uh, I have to invent some kind of device. I have to talk about going through a black hole. I have to explain how we can travel so fast from one planet to another, one, uh, and actually we're now traveling from Earth to Mars, but let's say I want to travel to a different solar system or a different galaxy. 
in order for it to be science fiction, I have to have some kind of explanation that's plausible. It may not exist, but we could say, well, you know, if we invented some kind of drive that hooked into black holes in the universe, we could go through that, and this is what a black hole would do, according to Stephen Hawking's speculations. He's obviously a world-renowned physicist. That's science fiction. But when Dorothy... Uh, gets back to Kansas by clicking her heels together three times. Well, that might be a great story, but that's fantasy. It's like magic. You just you just accept that it's magic, and it throws into that sort of black hole of it's magic. Don't explain it. Exactly right, and it, and it's fun, but there's really no explanation. And so the truth is, you know, the Harry Potter stories are wonderful stories in, in them in the the story and narrations that they give. But they're not science fiction because, again, the, the fact that you can just say an incantation and turn someone into something else, uh, again, there's no scientific plausibility there. Are you a fan of, of fantasy novels? Yeah, I am. You know, I'm not that much of a snob, and I see fantasy as sort of a cousin to science fiction. But the truth is fantasy doesn't hold the same uh, punch for me that science fiction has which is not to say there are not wonderful fantasy stories. Lord of the Rings has such detail, and so do the Harry Potter stories. They're such sophisticated fantasy. You know, they, they do set out a set of rules and things that you can and can't do that it, they could almost be science fiction. So in, in, in Lord of the Rings, you know, the, the dwarves, they could just be a real species. The hobbits also could be a different species. You know, you, you could put even a science fiction premise into it that, you know, these are early hominid human beings that first cropped up millions of years ago and somehow they managed to survive and here they are now. And in that sense, Lord of the Rings is fantasy, which almost verges on science fiction. But still in all at its heart, it's magic. And Sauron, you know, waves his bad spells over people without really any explanation. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Fordham professor Paul Levinson, and he's also a science fiction writer. So, Paul, does science fiction work in the same way as other literary categories of writing? Well, there are some important common goals and common needs that all writing has. You have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You have to have characters that are compelling, that people care about. You need to have a problem that's resolved in some way. So in that sense, science fiction is similar to other kinds of writing, other kinds of fiction. But the emphasis is different. So, you know, in mystery, it's often called a whodunit. Um, you, you know, you find a dead body who killed that person. In science fiction, it's usually what done it. And you can sometimes have a similar scenario. Uh, let's say, for example, you have a dead body inside a room that's locked from the inside and the windows are also locked from the inside and the police discover the body. How was that person killed if that person was murdered? In science fiction, you could say, Somebody beamed in and beamed out, and that would be that whole explanation. If it's mystery, you can't use that avenue. You have to figure out another way of telling the story. 
you have to be very careful about the genres that you stay in because your readers are ha have a certain expectation of the book, would you say? That's 100% right. Readers get angry when their genre expectations are uh, insulted. I, you know, I'll give you an example from my own work. Um, my story, Loose Ends, was reviewed uh, and said to be you know, a very flattering review that said this is an amazing time travel story set in New York City uh, and also a very compelling romance story. So there's a site called Goodreads, and they have various groups. And, of course, I'm a member of the time travel group, and I talk about my work there and talk about other people's works. But there's also a group called Time Travel Romance, and they are very, very specific and painstaking about what they want discussed in their group. And they have a whole thing saying, this is about romance that takes place in some kind of time travel setting, like Outlander, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, and, you know, what we're not interested in is a time travel story with just a little sprinkling of romance. So some people started talking about my book, Loose Ends. So I came in. There's not the, enough romance in it. That's right. Where's the love? Where's the right. love? So I finally said, well, look, read this review. Don't believe me. And they finally agreed, okay, you know, it does have enough romance. But you'd think almost you were applying to a university. <laughs> and, you know, that was, that was the requirement. You know, you right. uh, <laughs> have to have a certain amount of romance in there. But, yeah, you know, uh, readers are very... Uh, focused on what the expectations are, and they get really, really annoyed when they're violated. And speaking of readers, I know that some non-sci-fi readers say, science fiction is just too complicated or unrealistic. What will it take for the more general population to start taking writing more seriously? It seems like people can accept movies more seriously, but the actual writing of science fiction books take those more seriously. Well, this was reminiscent uh, of my late mother, may she rest in peace, who uh, the first time I gave one of my science fiction novels, uh, she said, <laughs> she read it. She said, oh, this is very, very good. When are you going to write about something more serious? So then I gave her one of my scholarly books. And as you know, I have a whole bunch of scholarly books. She read that, and uh, she said, all right, this is good. When are you going to write something that people can understand? So, you know, I got a lot of support. <laughs> Mom, can I ever please uh, yeah, you? Exactly. <laughs> um, but the fact, uh, you know, of the matter is science fiction, uh, in terms of uh, writing it, uh, it has to be written in a way that people can get woven into the story. And there's something for example, called the information dump, which is uh, a warning that experienced writers and editors always give to new writers. What does that mean? An information, information dump. dump. And science fiction, unfortunately, is especially prone to that. Uh, what an information dump is, is let's say, again, uh, another one of my uh, n novels, um, The Silk Code, uh, featuring uh, the possibility that Neanderthals may have survived into the present age. 
So I need to tell my readers something about Neanderthals, right? Because not everyone is necessarily on the same page. I mean, everyone has heard the word Neanderthal. But I know they're related to cavemen, but... That's right. When exactly did they live? What happened to them? So the best way of doing it is to weave that information organically into the story so that it comes in naturally, like in conversations, a little bit at a time. The way not to do it is at some point in the novel have one character like talk for like four or five pages just giving all the information. Well, Neanderthals were alive, you know, uh, until about 35,000 years ago and then they were wiped out by chrome. They don't want to hear a lecture. Exactly. Or read a lecture in this case. That's right. So, you know, what that points to is in order to be a skilled and successful writer, you have to still keep that story first and foremost. And yeah, you need the information, but it has to be worked in in an organic way. Now, you talked a little about your uh, The Silk Code, which was your first science fiction book. Is that correct? The Silk Code was my first science fiction novel, and it features uh, Dr. Phil D'Amato, who is a New York City forensic detective working with the NYPD. That was published in 1999. And uh, a, a funny story about that, when I was just finishing up the novel and I printed up the manuscript and my wife was reading it, she left it on the coffee table. And our daughter, Molly, who's now 29 years old, married, but at this point she's like 11 or 12 years old, uh, unbeknownst to me or my wife, she picks up the manuscript and reads the whole thing. And she comes and tells me, Daddy, this is the best novel I ever read, which was really wonderful. Did she know it was yours? Yeah. yeah. And she said, Daddy, Phil DeMotto is just like you. And I say, well, thanks. <laughs> but then I realized, my God, there are a couple of like uh, scenes in there where I wouldn't have necessarily <laughs> wanted, wanted her my, to read. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so you got to be careful. But actually, uh, you know, I took that as a compliment because another aspect of, of writing well, I think, is putting yourself in the story, not directly. So when I'm writing, whether it's about a New York forensic detective or a graduate student who goes back in time uh, or any of these uh, science fiction stories, I always imagine how I would react in those situations and the response I would have. And Paul, having said that about having just a little bit of yourself in your writing, when writers do put themselves into their writing, even a little bit, and then they're critiqued, I can understand why that would hurt <laughs> because it's almost like a rejection of who you are as opposed to a character. So as a writer, how do you recommend that another writer get past, be hurt by a, a critic? It's very tough. You know, the cliche is he or she is criticizing the work, not you. But that's really nonsense because, as you just said, you created the work. So if somebody's criticizing the work, they are criticizing you. There are several ways that you can get beyond this, I think, or at least not get too upset by bad uh, reviews or negative criticism, which everybody gets. First and foremost, and I hate to quote Donald Trump, but he's right about some things. He has a saying that the worst publicity is no publicity. Uh, but there's an important truth in that, which is the worst thing for a writer is to be ignored. The worst thing is to get no reviews. David Hume published his great book on philosophy, I don't know, say around 1710, and he was quoted as saying the book was born, stillborn, from the press. 
and that expressed his profound aggravation that no one was talking about the book or reviewing it. So every time I get a negative review, and it happens, uh, I always say, hey, look, at least this person read the book. They were motivated enough to say these negative things. And, uh, you know, I have to have confidence that sooner or later someone will say something positive. And that almost always happens. I don't think I've ever had a story or a novel that's been universally panned. But that gets to the other point, which is this. You can't please everybody. It, it, it's just impossible. And furthermore, the more... Uh, daring you are, the, the more you do things that other writers don't do, the more you're bound to be upsetting certain readers. So that comes with the territory. So if you're going to be a pioneer, if you're going to do things that other people don't do, if you're going to take chances, you need to be prepared for uh, negative reactions. And the truth is there are people who love my work and there are people who hate my work. Yeah. But tell me about Phil D'Amato. You have um, three books. There are also three uh, novelettes, the chronology protection case, the copyright notice case, uh, and the Mendelian lamp case, uh, which were published prior to the three novels. And in fact, the chronology protection case that also won uh, some awards, was nominated for a whole bunch of awards. It was made into a low-budget movie, which, by the way, you can get on iTunes or Amazon. What's the name of the movie? The chronology protection case. <laughs> and it was made into a high-budget radio play, which was also nominated for the Edgar Award uh, for the best audio drama. But I'll tell you about Phil D'Amato. What happened in the chronology protection case, and this is a, a good story, he, he's a, a New York uh, City forensic detective. He's a New Yorker through and through, just like me. When we first meet him, he's, he's a little younger than, you know, because he gets a little older as the stories continue. Uh, in one of his stories, he meets Jenna Caton. Uh, and at first, she's a suspect, but the two fall in love and get married. There's your romance, people. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, by the time we get to the pixel eye, they're married. They may be having some kids, you know, and so we, we see him develop. The idea, though, is it, it's basically this, that, it, and here again, you know, science fiction sometimes is not too far ahead of reality. For all I know, this is even already happening. The gimmick in the pixel eye is, let's say we could implant microchips into the brains of squirrels and birds so that whatever they looked at, whatever they heard, would be relayed back to some kind of central system. That would be an unbelievably good system for spying, wouldn't That's it? That's true. Because who would suspect a squirrel or a bird? Right. So, you know, there you go. It grew from there. That's right. We talked a lot about sci-fi books, but what science fiction movie do you find yourself watching over and over and over again? I have a few favorite science fiction movies. The Back to the Future trilogy is outstanding. You mentioned the butterfly effect. That, if that, you had to pick one uh, that you could put in a time capsule that future generations would open. It would be 12 Monkeys. Really? That's the right. The one with Bruce Willis and that, Brad Pitt. Correct. Why? Because it takes the paradoxes of time travel seriously. Because what usually happens in time travel movies, they give like a little nod to the paradox, and then basically the character is able to walk around it somehow. But again, without giving away the ending of the movie, that scene in the airport 
really pulls everything together. It's not only a, a powerful scene emotionally, but intellectually it's powerful because it, it closes the loop of the paradox and, and explains what happened earlier in the movie. And I just thought that was brilliant. The whole movie was brilliant. And again, you know, just like the great details, which I think uh, are needed in any great science fiction, whether it's a movie or a book. So, Paul, which of your short stories would you recommend? Well, I've written, you know, dozens and dozens of them, and they've been published all over the place. Uh, I go swimming in a sports club, and one day I came downstairs, and I have a Prius, a gray Prius. Does this really happen, or is this a story? This is the basis of the story, okay. but what I'm telling you is what really happened. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you I was getting into it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good story. I come downstairs from this... Uh, pool where I go swimming uh, up in Westchester and I have a Prius a gray Prius that's my car and I see parked right next to my car is another gray Prius and it's the same model and it looks a lot like my car it even has like some scuffs now of course it wasn't my car it had a different license plate and my mind is like spinning off I'm saying wait a second this is a great premise for a story. Let's say that was my car. Is it possible that that was the beginning of an alternate universe being born right at that site? So I wrote this story, The Other Car, uh, and it's available on Amazon for like, I don't know, about $1.99 or two ninety nine. It's a quick read, about 6,000 words. If you want to get into my demented mind, that's a good way of doing it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, Paul, and sharing all your information, your knowledge, and your sci-fi love. Uh, my pleasure. I'd like to thank my guest, Fordham professor and science fiction author, Paul Levinson. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs>